On July 20th, 1968, a ship set sail from La Palma Island in the Canary Islands. What follows is one of the strangest nautical mysteries in the history of sailing. Not only does it disappear, it disappears three times. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of El Fasto. To a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. I've uh, been getting some good feedback on the Toynbee Tales. A lot of people hadn't ever heard of it, and then everybody's... Really? Yeah, that's what I was... I was like, and you call yourselves mysterious followers. Yeah, come on. Man. Yeah. Psh. But anyway, we... There's a... I've... Got a couple of ladies I work with. They were blowing up my chat today about it. And then I told one of them was just started it. And so I told her, I said, follow the recommendations. And then some students found me somehow. Thank God it was at the end of the year. (laughs) (laughs) I won't have them again. They were asking the same thing. I told them, I was like, man, between the documentary and the follow-up documentary and that website, I said, you can lose a couple hours if you really want to. Seriously. Just the dedication is what, to me, is the most amazing. That man was dedicated to this. Yes, he was. He was passionate. Even if it was art, just an art project. I mean, to stay that focused on it for that long is just amazing to me. Yeah, I don't have that drive and determination. No, not at all. Uh, We do have a new patron, Mo Hamblegum. They decided they didn't like our $3 tier or our $10 tier, and they created their own $6 tier. So we appreciate that. The shipping department, the PR department, whatever you want to call it, had a gross overlook, and our buddy from Bardstown, Kentucky Heater, we will, uh, we're right in the wrong, brother. That's all I can say. Right in the wrong. <laughs> that ain't on me. Yeah. I'm just a pretty face. Like, I don't do anything on this podcast except the intro. (laughs) (laughs) What's really funny is how close to the truth that is. You are the glue that holds us together, Coach. I mean, it's not the same without me, but. That's right. (laughs) And I can't, like, take breaks and take a drink if I'm having to do it by myself. (laughs) By myself. (laughs) But anyway, I hear uh, you had a, a nice trip. To the great state of Tennessee. Yeah, I meant to I meant to talk about this on the Tony B episode, but I completely overlooked it. 
Yeah, I went to Memphis for a three-day concert, and we learned something in Memphis. And, like, when I say this, you're just going to be like, oh, he's exaggerating. You have to experience it to believe it. If you're from Memphis, please confirm this for me. But I've driven in Atlanta traffic many, many times. It does not hold a candle to the people in Memphis. They drive like it's their last day on earth, and they want to take as many people with them as possible. There's too many examples to list. I'll be talking too long. But the first one we experienced, we were a mile away from our hotel on the interstate. Did we're in the middle the, lane. Did this set the tone for the whole weekend? Yes. <laughs> we almost died legitimately twice. I'll tell you the second one in just a second, but it doesn't involve traffic. We were in the middle lane. There's a car in the left lane. Let's say their back right tire is lined up with our front left tire. A Ford F-150 passes us going in between us. Dang. Nope. I mean, could you could you get paint chips if you needed it? Like, our mirrors came within inches of each other. Like, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I screamed as if I was Mariah Carey hitting her high note. And I didn't even know I was capable of something like that. (laughs) Just imagine any high note Mariah Carey's hit, and I matched it. I think I cracked the the rearview mirror. (laughs) It's crazy. The whole weekend, everybody's driving insane. So now we got a term for we see a crazy driver here. It was like, we got a Memphis coming. (laughs) We got a level four Memphis on our tail. Oh, that truck Lord. was a level 10. <laughs> it's insane. Now, I've come through there two different ways, but most of the time when we coming home this past year, um, well, no, this year because it was January. Coming home this year, we came through on a Sunday. I don't know when the hell we came home. Anyway, whenever it was, we came through right after lunchtime, and it was a little bit calmer. But the previous two trips through there were both at night. But we came by near the airport, and you would think some of those. But I never saw trucks. I saw most of them were uh, Crown Vicks and yeah. Oh my God, yes, Altimas <laughs> and that. I saw like two or three Crown Vicks doing stupid shit. Like there was a Mustang in downtown Memphis. Driving up and down the wrong side of the road as fast as he could. Now, granted, there wasn't a lot of traffic, but he's still on the opposite side of the road. Good purposely. God. It's, it was insane. If you ever go to Memphis, you have been warned. <laughs> Take it from me. You'll see for yourself. All right. The second time we almost died, on Saturday, we're going to see the Smashing Pump. Right before they take the stage, they say there's a weather delay. And this is that Bill. Um, Liberty, uh, is that the Liberty Bowl? Yeah. It's Fairgrounds Liberty Bowl. Well, they say everybody's got to go into the Liberty Bowl for shelter. We're like, blah, 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 whatever. It was a freaking torrential downpour for an hour. Soaking wet. Thought they were going to cancel the show, but it stops raining. But they got to wait for the weather to clear. They're trying to huddle everybody in the Liberty Bowl. And this concert had three stages. 
I, I don't know who's playing on the other stage, but Smashing Pumpkins are going to play, and then Megan Die Stallion is going to play. And ton, like, the majority of people there to see her. Okay? Well, me and my girlfriend are trying to sneak around because we want to be as close to the Smashing Pumpkins as possible, so we're not trying to go into the Liberty Bowl. We're trying to hide from the cops and all that. They're finally catch us, and they're huddling us up. We're like the last 10 people to go into the Liberty Bowl, and there's probably 30,000 people with not exaggerating because of the three stages. Well, as soon as we get walking down towards that crowd, they cancel the, the weather delay. And these two cops just wave people on, and they run to their car because they know what's coming. <laughs> You know it's bad when the cops are running. Like me, eight, uh, me, my girlfriend, and eight other people are walking down this ramp, and thirty thousand people take off running at full speed towards you. Like you know that moment in Stand by Me when they're on the bridge and the train, and they see the train. It was like that. We had to turn, and I'm not a sprinter <laughs> by any means. Any, any stretch of imagination. <laughs> We had to sprint like 30 yards to this small gate. The gate's probably two cars side by side could squeeze through it. That's how wide this thing is. And there's about to be 30,000 people trying to get through it. And Megan Nye Stallion's stage is to the left. So I'm telling my girlfriend, go, go, go right, go right, go right. Now. I swear to God, we barely got out of that gate. Man, we would have been, if we'd have just stood still, we'd have been trampled to death. Dear God. Horribly dangerous situation. You think Megan the Stallion was giving out her new uh, hot sauce at, that she has at Popeye's? I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but listen, this is the best part. Is all these people ran for her stage? She had a quote unquote wardrobe malfunction. There was the there, Smashing like, Pumpkins didn't come on stage for about 30 minutes after we got there, performed for an hour and a half. And as we're leaving, Megan the nice Stallion takes the stage. Dang. So all those people ran like that to sit there and wait for two hours. Wet and sweaty. She didn't take the, she didn't take the stage till 2 a.m. Good God. Well, I mean, we had a weather delay. It's a, it's a music festival. They were playing music all damn day. Damn. Anyway, that's the time, two times I almost died in, in, uh, in Memphis. But Graceland was nice. <laughs> well, that's the best part. And... Did you see Elvis taking care of the grounds? I did not. I knew he was upstairs, though. I heard a toilet flush. Ah, there you go. We've got the pipes working better now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry, that's a long tangent, but I, I'm, it's, I thought they were two pretty good stories of how I almost died. Yes, your well-being is always a great topic. Either one of those went the other way. You'd be alone. You'd have to do a little... Guys, I hate to I hate to tell you this. No, man, I'll keep you on. I'll cut the shit out of every episode I can. <laughs> You're not gonna do it. No, I'm oh, gonna guys. keep it up. It'll be the like just... <laughs> he was trampled no, with a chicken wing in his mouth. Yeah, no, he did not. He did not choke on barbecue. <laughs> he was actually trampled to death. <laughs> Last scene was an F two fifty white in color. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a fun trip though. Well, I did also meet Jerry the King Lawler. That's there pretty cool. There you go. I forgot about that. And Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart. How old is Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart now? A hundred? I don't know, but he looks every bit of a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> every damn bit of it. 
Oh, that's even better. All right, man. So let's get into it. The This week's topic is the El Fausto. And it was a fishing vessel that belonged to a company owned by Rafael Acosta. And it was built at the port of Tassacorte on the island of La Palma. And you may be asking yourself, is that like Las Palmas? But no, that <laughs> Las, Pal- Las Palmas is the palms. La Palma is located in the Canary Islands of Spain. Now, the boat, the boat, the vessel in the boat had a total length of 14 meters. And for us Americans, that's 46 feet. So it's quite a long, but it was a, a boat. Now, it was a sailing vessel and a fishing vessel, but it was also a jack-of-all-trades, and it transported anything from fruits, vegetables, diesel fuel, anything else that they may need in that port. It was powered by a 43-horsepower Litz engine and only had a top speed of 7 knots. And I finally found a conversion that means 8 miles an hour on land. Wow, that's yeah. good. They are humping it, son. So the ship never ventured into the open ocean and was primarily used for inner island navigation and, like I said, never really set sail with its main mast. And it would kind of jog up and down the coast and always had land in its sight. Uh, the El Fausto never had any safety violations and was, for all intents and purposes, a seaworthy vessel. The crew included brothers Ramon and Alberto Hernandez, 47 and 42 years old, and Miguel and Viterbo Acosta, 43 and 41 years old. Now, the Acosta brothers were relatives of the owner and had many years of selling experience and they had worked together for many many years too on the evening of july 20th 1968 the el fasto set sail for el hilero which is about 50 miles south of the port of tazacorte the cargo for this trip was a lot of explosives and if i was considering explosives in the 60s i'm thinking dynamite now this is not out of the ordinary because The farmers usually and quite frequently used explosives to blow up rocks on the island to create more farmable land. And due to the local Carmen Festival, Viterbo Acosta, one of the crew members, had to stay behind to help everyone set up for the festival so he did not accompany his brother and the Hernandez brothers. So the three crew members that set sail are Ramon Alberto Hernandez and Miguel Acosta. So they take off and head out of Tazacorte and they traveled about seven hours and arrived at the port of Frontera on the northern coast of El Hero. While the crew on the ship was busy unloading the cargo in the port, Julio Garcia just so happened to appear on shore. Now, Julio was a 27-year-old engineer. He was married, had two daughters, and he was also from Tazacorte and worked as an automatic irrigation system repair man on a private property in El Hero. But that day, he had received a phone call from his wife and learned that his two-month-old daughter at home had a high fever 
and the doctor had prescribed antibiotics, but the situation was still not under control. He felt that he needed to be home with his wife and family, but because he received the phone call later in the day, the return train home had already departed, and if he couldn't find another way home, he was going to have to wait an extra two days for the next train. As luck would have it, he saw the El Fausto and asked the crew if he could hitch a ride back. Of course, being sympathetic to the young man, the crew was like, yeah, man, come on, let's go. And so they loaded more than 10 kilos, which is about 23 pounds of fruit for the return trip back to Tazacorte. Now, the El Fausto left El Hero at 2.30 a.m. and began the return trip home. Unfortunately, this would be the last time any of the four men ever set foot on land again. Now, according to the testimony of local fishermen and sailors, on the day the El Fausto was scheduled to return, the sea was very calm, the weather was normal, although fog appeared early in the morning. According to the sailing experience of the El Fausto crew, it was not and should not have been a hindrance. And even if the fog had prevented them from seeing La Palma's iconic giant mountains, they could easily reorient themselves as soon as the sun came up and burned the fog away. Based on the ship's speed, the El Fausto was due back at Tazacorte around 10 a.m. on July 21, 1968. However, the ship did not return to the port as scheduled. The owner was concerned, and he immediately ordered another of his ships to set sail from the port of Tazacorte, heading in the same direction the El Fausto would have traveled to the port of Frontera on El Hero. Now, the searcher ship returns and stated they could not find any trace of El Fausto. They found no debris, no lifeboats, nothing. On July 25th, 1968, shortly after midnight, the maritime authorities received a radio message, and this was from the Duquesa, and that is Duchess in Spanish. Now, the Duquesa was a British reefer ship that was coming from South America en route to the Netherlands, and they had spotted a small fishing boat that seemed to drift in the ocean. The boat's crew was apparently using a flashlight to signal their position. They reported a location of 28 degrees, 15 minutes north, 19 degrees, 45 minutes west, which placed them at some 190 kilometers or 120 miles west of La Palma, way off the original route for the El Fausto. Never going to get a, a decent explanation for how that happened either. No. And if you think that's a far stretch to be off course, hold on. And not long after, the British vessel confirmed that the El Fausto was, in fact, everybody on board was alive. And they stated that all four crew members were a little bit dehydrated, hungry, sunburned, and a little bit pissed, but they were alive. The good news quickly spread not only across La Palma, but across the whole of the Canary Islands. Seeing that after almost four days of dread... Eventually, there would be a happy ending to the story. With the help of some Spanish-speaking crew members, the Duquesa could communicate with the crew of the El Fausto. Yeah, they're going to offer to tell them, hey, we'll bring you back, take you back where you need to go. And they're like, eh, we're cool. 
Yeah, that's that's the, what I don't understand. They gave them food, water, cigarettes, and then offered the tow. And then the four guys were like, "Meh, how about well, you just, just yeah, just give us some gas, man. We'll be cool." Yeah. <laughs> they they claimed the boat was in perfect working order. They just drifted like they weren't even out of gas. They just needed more to get home. They were asked by the crew of the Tequesa what kind of mechanical failure had happened. And they replied that nothing was wrong. The boat was fine and nothing was really out of the ordinary. So so how did you get 120 miles off course in the middle of the Atlantic? I'm pretty sure the middle of the ocean is not somewhere you need to be just chilling. Not on a 46-foot sailboat. I can guarantee you there. Kicked back, sunburnt, a little dehydrated, but whatever. Hey, man, if you got some cigarettes and about 30 gallons of diesel fuel, we all right. Yeah, man, let's do it. <laughs> we got all this fruit we're trying to take home. We'll just eat the shit out of it. But anyway, the commander of the Duquesa and the other crew members would point out that even though the four men were frightened by being adrift and off course, they were not in that catatonic, crazy state that a lot of castaways are found in. Well, it hadn't been that. It wasn't that long, though. I mean, no, there was, what is it, four days? When did they? were? They yeah. were scheduled to come back on the... Yeah, they were supposed to be back on the 21st, and on the 25th is when, so roughly four or five days. So the Duquesa reluctantly, according to an interview that occurred later, gave the crew members enough fuel for sailing 18 hours full ahead and a generous food and water supply for the trip. I mean, I guess you can't force somebody to be towed in. No, not really. I, you know, and I got to thinking about that, too, because if you just roll up on it, it I guess because I don't I'm not out in the ocean, don't have any plans to be out in the ocean. But it's kind of like if you rolled up on a, you know, a, a long highway that didn't have a lot of stuff on it. Somebody's broke down. And you're like, hey, man, I can tow you to the this garage that I know is right up the road. And they're like, nah, truck's okay. Uh, if you just give us a little bit of gas and some cigarettes, we'll be all right. And then I guess you're thinking, well, shit, okay. Yeah. So I don't know. No reason to. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's got to be the exact, that exact situation where you're going to hold them, by, hold them at gunpoint and be like, by God, I'm towing you, man. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? I can guarantee you after this, the Duquesa didn't uh, indulge anybody else that needed to tow. <laughs> no doubt. So the Duquesa watches as the El Fausto heads back towards La Palma, and the Duquesa radioed the port of Tazacorte that basically they would be in port around 7 p.m. on July 25th, and the El Fausto should be right behind them. So you're looking anywhere from 7 to, I would say, 11, 12 o'clock at night. But they should be on their way. They were pointed in the right direction. So back in Tazacorte, they were jumping for joy. By about 6 o'clock, the whole town had gathered at the port waiting for the El Fausto's return. They had started this mini celebration, broke out the wine, the cheese, whatever else they have on that. I mean, I think those, I think people like that just looking for an excuse to party, you know. Yeah, if you're living in the Canary Islands, it, it hey, somebody crossed the street. Drink up. <laughs> <laughs> so that 7 p.m. estimation 
comes and it goes. And there's still no sign of the El Fausto. Everyone in the docks were encouraging the crew members' families to stay hopeful. And they were being reassured that probably they would be coming right over the horizon in maybe an hour or two. Well, those hours passed. The night came and went and the sun started to come up. And besides a few boats that had sailed earlier in hopes of encountering the El Fausto, no El Fausto. Refusing to let their fears creep back in their minds, the wives and the children of the sailors stayed on the docks where they would spend most of the next day waiting for a boat that would never come back, giving up to the harsh reality that the El Fausto was again missing at sea. It's crazy. Just goes to show you guys, if you're ever missing at sea and someone offers to tell you, let them tell you. And yeah, yeah, and we'll get into where you should sit. Very soon. And don't smoke the cigarettes. Not around diesel fuel. Not a good combination. Even though I know a small engine repair guy that always has like a Marlboro with about an inch and a half of ash on it when he's working on my lawnmower. It scares the shit out of me every time. I mean, it's no Virginia Slim with two inches of ash, but it's close enough. (laughs) (laughs) So the owner of the company felt that the situation was dire and he suspected that there was something very wrong with the ship's machinery or equipment causing the ship to lose control and drift off course. However, as long as there was still enough food and water on board the El Fausto, he felt like that he could find them. So Mr. Acosta immediately contacted local authorities and the search and rescue teams and hoped to receive some professional assistance. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health. I needed more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system, and I despise taking vitamins. So I've been on it for about five weeks, and it's pretty good. It doesn't taste like a super healthy green smoothie. It has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to. You know, it's it, it's very good. It's 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. It helps start your day off right. And it's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy recovery, you name it. Now, I usually take it in the mornings and right after I have my coffee. And then I've noticed that my digestion has gotten more regulated. My energy levels are up. I would say the taste is more like a coconut, but some people say that it's more like a mango. But I've had my wife try it. She loves it. And I always make sure that I have it when I travel. It is lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still having a great taste. It supports better sleep quality and recovery, and it also supports mental clarity and alertness. It's the one thing with the best things. Athletic Greens use the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. The price is going to cost you less than $3 a day. And it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. And you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes. And Athletic Greens was created 
when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recovery. It cost him $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrition routine on your own. It is trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. And for every purchase, we donate to organizations helping to get nutritious foods to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. And in 2020, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. Right now is the time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health. I needed more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system, and I despise taking vitamins. So I've been on it for about five weeks, and it's pretty good. I, it doesn't taste like a super healthy green smoothie. It has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to. You know, it's it, it's very good. It's 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. It helps start your day off right. And it's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy recovery, you name it. Now, I usually take it in the mornings and right after I have my coffee. And then I've noticed that my digestion has gotten more regulated. My energy levels are up. I would say the taste is more like a coconut, but some people say that it's more like a mango. But I've had my wife try it. She loves it. And I always make sure that I have it when I travel. It is lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still having a great taste. It supports better sleep quality and recovery, and it also supports mental clarity and alertness. It's the one thing with the best things. Athletic Greens use the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. The price is going to cost you less than $3 a day. And it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself and you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes. And Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recovery. It cost him $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrition routine on your own. It is trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. And for every purchase, we donate to organizations helping to get nutritious foods to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. And in 2020, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. Right now is the time to reclaim your health 
and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So on July 26, 1968, the Spanish authorities dispatched four Casa 2 111 bombers and began a circular search pattern along the locations reported by the Duquesa. In addition, a number of warships had joined the search along with a rescue team. Later in the day, Grumman seaplanes and two Douglas DC-4 aircrafts were also sent to search. The Spanish government invested more than 1 million pesetas, which is equivalent to $2.26 million in 1968. Jesus. In 2022, in the year of our Lord, that is $17.13 million. Good Lord. Yeah. So they really went all out trying to find these boys. They must have had something important on that ship. Yeah, it was a little early for some Colombian bam bam, but that's what <laughs> that's what it kind of reminds me of. Um, however, the largest and most expensive search and rescue operation in Spanish history yielded a zero results, and the El Fausto wow. strangely disappeared from the Atlantic waters. But on August seventh, that was my best Antonio Banderas I could do. It was horrible, just so you know. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Always building me up. Always tell me I can achieve my dreams. <laughs> On August 7, 1968, authorities canceled the official search and rescue operation and officially listed the El Fausto as missing because it was judged that the crew could not have survived any longer. The family members of the crew members were puzzled in the fact that somehow the crew who had made this round trip often could not have found their way home. although. The disappearance of the El Fausto had gained a lot of attention for a while. As time went on, like in most cases, people started talking about it less and less, and life just seemed to pass the village by. So we fast forward to 10.54 a.m. on October the 9th, 1968, two months after the time of the disappearance. The Italian merchant ship Ana de Mayo was en route to Venezuela and in the middle, and when I say the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, like if you have a map or a globe and you look at Venezuela and then you draw a line towards the Canary Islands, I mean the dead center of the ocean. There's nothing out there. The captain of the Ana de Mayo stated that the conditions were a little bit of dark and cloudy uh, skies, but the sailing conditions were good. Everything was going smoothly until they hit the coordinates 23 degrees, 3 minutes north, and 38 degrees, 30 minutes west. And that I is know one, exactly where that is. I knew you did. If, you, if you're paying attention and you just type that in Google Earth, you'll see it's in the middle of nowhere's right next to Bumblebutt. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is when the crew spotted something ahead of them in the distance. Upon closer inspection, they realized that they were looking at a small fishing boat, the kind that is not designed to be crossing the Atlantic Ocean. The boat seemed to drift with no one at the wheel. The boat's call sign was clearly visible on the hull, and the call sign was TE-2-12-68, and the name was... The Alfausto. The Alfausto? It was the Alfausto. Oh, my God. What a coincidence. I know. We're talking about it, yeah, and it just kind of pops up. <laughs> so the Ana de Mayo stopped next to the small boat. The first mate, Luciano Asioni, along with a deck sailor, boarded the Alfausto. No one was at the deck or the cabin, but the boat was in real good condition, according to the two men. It looked like the crew had just vanished. So Asione found no signs of piracy like violence or damage, no blood, no anything. He couldn't find bullet holes, nothing that would lead you to believe that something had gone awry on the ship. He could not find the logbook either. So far, the El Fausto looked like a perfectly seaworthy ship that somehow had ended up in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with no one on board. That that was until Asione opened the hatch on the deck that led to the engine room and climbed down inside. There, he finds a dead man lying face up on the floor next to the ship's engine. The man was naked and had a transistor radio lying next to him. The man had clearly been dead for a while, and due to the conditions of the open ocean, his body was mummified to a degree. So it said in the article that that I read that Asione was alarmed and commanded the deck sailor back. And I'm thinking, no, Asione shit his pants and said, get the fuck out of here. There's a dead guy. He was slightly bothered. (laughs) Guys, seriously, you should probably go back up. There seems to be a situation. Uh, So anyway, he orders the deckhand to go radio it in. And he goes back down into the engine compartment and starts looking around, trying to figure out what could have happened to the boat. The only thing that he finds is a small notebook that he thought may have belonged to the dead man. Upon opening it, the first thing that caught his eye was the fact that a lot of pages from this notebook had been removed. And eventually, it would be determined that 28 pages were missing from the notebook. From the remaining pages, he discovered the first couple of pages had a set of numbers that were used for quick, simple calculation and some notes in Spanish. The last page contained some content. However, he determines that it's not truly the last page. It was only the last remaining page. The true last page had been removed. So he carefully looks over the last page, and it contained a much more elaborate text. And since he did not speak or read Spanish, he could not fully understand it. But he did notice, nonetheless, that it was some kind of farewell. He eventually returns back to the Ana de Mayo with the notebook and the very few documents found on the cabin, which were mostly insurance documents. So after five hours from the encounter, the Spanish authorities 
were made aware of the discovery, and so were the residents of La Palma. It seemed that once the mysterious body arrived back to Spain for further examination, at least they could get some sort of answers. Diana de Mayo had informed of their intention to tow the El Fausto with them all the way to Puerto Carbello, Venezuela. So they're like, look, if y'all want this ship, y'all going to have to come to Venezuela and get it. We're not turning around and bringing it to you. But they did say that they would send the documents they found with the notebook, which just so happened to be sent later in a separate envelope back to Spain. Fast forward a couple of days, we were talking, all that went down on October the 9th. So on October the 11th, a telegram from the Ana de Mayo is received. And after only less than two days from the El Fausto's reappearance and subsequent decision to tow it to Venezuela, the Spanish authorities receive a message. And the message is probably what could be looked at as just icing on the cake of this story. Yeah. I mean, how does a ship that's getting towed disappear again? Well, according to the Ana de Mayo, the El Fausto had sunk bow first during the night, ripping and dragging the towing cable with it. Mm, that's fucking crazy. And the thing is, if it's in the middle of the night, you're not sure when the damn thing broke loose. If it didn't make a whole lot of sound or if you were in heavy seas. Now, they would tell the Spanish government that they believed the position of the sinking was 19 degrees, 46 minutes north, 46 degrees, 26 minutes west, which puts it 2,200 kilometers or 1,400 miles southwest from La Palma and 3,000 kilometers or 1,800 miles northeast from Venezuela. Unfortunately, they left the body on the El Fausto and therefore, it also vanished along with the boat. All that was left now was the documents retrieved by Sione. Eventually, the little notebook arrives in La Palma, where it was shown to the victim's family. It is decided, once it got to Julio Garcia's wife, Luz, she recognized it as her husband's notebook, in which he would always write down his personal notes and payments from those who had requested his services as a mechanic back in La Palma. But once on Spanish soil, the notebook's contents were examined. The last page did, in fact, contain a farewell from Julio to his young wife in which he instructed her how to proceed with the insurances he had paid for and how to sell his properties so she would not find herself with no money after his death. The end of his farewell states, quote, don't ever tell and he uses their five-year-old son's name, but it wasn't available in what I was reading. All that happened to me. You know that God wanted this fate for me. I love you. Julio's address was written at the bottom of the page, and Luz confirmed that that was her husband's handwriting. As for Luz, in 2013, she was still alive and had still kept that last page of Julio's notebook. She never remarried. Ugh. Sad. It is sad. And creepy. Yeah. The most striking aspect of said note was the fact that Julio knew he was going to die. And 
how I'm, the note kind of started abruptly and then just kind of drifted off. Like, I don't know if he was losing consciousness or he was hallucinating, but along with the missing pages, it led investigators to believe that for some reason, Julio probably had documented everything that had gone on. But again, those 28 pages are missing. Yeah. It's kind of like an indicator. From what I read, you can kind of tell, like at the beginning of the last page, that it's a continuation of of something. You know, at least the at least the page before. Right. So the big question is, who removed the pages, and why would they do that? And what happened to the rest of El Fausto's crew? A better question is, why did they refuse to be towed back to La Palma by the Duquesa? You're asking the wrong guy. I haven't answered a single question in this entire podcast. (laughs) I guess the other thing is, why would you tell the Duquesa that everything was fine, even if it was, say, your compass was out, and that's what led you to be adrift? But the way I read it... Good old-fashioned, dumbass male pride, maybe? That was, yeah, I'm going to get to that. That That is part of somebody's probably most relevant theory, but I don't, I mean, what's funny is, and I don't guess the Duquesa really knew that it had been missing until they radioed in and said, Hey, the ship's out here. We've given some food and water. They're heading in. But I'd like to know if anyone asked them what they were doing out there. But again, these are questions that we just can't answer. All right, so when you when we talk about true crime theories, we talk about some of the basics, and we all shoot holes in them. You know, they wanted to start a new life. They were selling drugs. They met with foul play, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, guess what? When we start with these theories of what happened to the El Fausto, the number one theory out there was they were going to sell the ocean blue to get to Venezuela to start a better life. Now, while this is possible, it is extremely unlikely. It is true that the post-war and early stages of General Franco's regime had sentenced millions of Spaniards to live in debilitating poverty, forcing many of the Canary Islanders to venture into crossing the ocean on small boats, hoping to reach Venezuela, which at that time was an emerging economy. That's because Hitler's over there. But like their grandparents did in the late 19th and 20th century, they were looking to better their life. However, most of those, I guess, departures to Venezuela actually occurred during the 40s when a famine was at hand. By 1968, the Spanish economy had greatly improved and they were seeing a tourism boom from the early 60s. So at the time, the situation was no longer so bad that people would risk their lives trying to cross an open ocean for a better future. What is more is, at the time of General Franco's regime, he had actually softened a whole lot, and little by little, Spain was becoming a more progressive society in contrast to the rigid conservative politics that he instilled when he first took over. Now, besides all of that, none of the four men would have even thought of trying to cross the Atlantic with only 20-something pounds or 10 kilograms of fruits and a few liters of fresh water. It would have taken them approximately a month to reach Venezuela and a ton of fuel. 
even with the supplies provided by the Duquesa, they would have known that would have been a suicidal move. So while it is possible, it's extremely unlikely. The next on the theories list is they witnessed something they were not supposed to see at sea. Which is possible, but that doesn't explain um, why they turned down the hell, the tow. Or that ship itself is what did them in. Yeah, I don't uh, see that one is the way this theory kind of starts off was the Cold War is, you know, raging. And supposedly someone theorized that maybe the El Fausto had seen a U.S. and a USSR submarine attack or conflict. And the what, what they cite is a few months earlier, the USS Scorpion had sunk just a short distance from the El Fausto's point of disappearance. And many thought and still think that the cause of the sinking was a Soviet submarine attack. Now, they said that back in the 60s, the North Atlantic basically was, you had American and Soviet nuclear subs just constantly screwing with each other. So again, it's highly unlikely. So I, and the other thing is if that's the case, they could have removed themselves by from the situation when the Duquesas turn or shows up. And like I said, the Anna de Mayo reports that there's no significant damage to the ship when they find it. And then the next theory is the four men were trafficking guns, drugs, and illegal goods, trying to avoid maritime authorities and ended up lost at sea. Again, this is highly unlikely. They're not making a ton of money doing what they're doing, but none of their families were in a desperate financial situation. None of them had any big debts and they didn't have any criminal records. They had no reason to put themselves or their families at risk of prison or violence for extra cash. And they're all in their 40s, in the 60s. I don't see them all of a sudden deciding, you know what, let's start running guns and drugs or contraband. And this one, oh, this one's a doozy. So you might want to get your old tinfoil hat out. The boat was kidnapped by a Nazi fugitive that had been hiding at El Hierro and needed to escape to South America after knowing about Wiesenthal's efforts to hunt former SS officials down. Now, while that could be a possibility, it is more than likely an urban legend that started to circulate across the whole of the Canary Islands at the time. And, oddly enough, there was some Nazi U-boats sighted in the Canary Islands right after the war. But we're talking, this is 1968. Now, getting into male pride, and this is the last theory that I could find, and this is the one that I really like, is the guy that stated this was on a message board. It's not one of your normal ones either. I don't even know how the hell I found it. It is spacebattles.com. <laughs> is where I found this theory, and I thought that this really actually was probably the best thing out there. So he states that the frequency of industrial accidents when plotted against experience has an interesting reverse bell curve shape. You get the expected spike of accidents and incidents among the noobs, of course. Then the curve drops as people get to know the ins and outs and pitfalls. But then, interestingly enough, it starts to curve back up as the familiarity breeds contempt. 
and people start to think they can get away with shortcuts and bullshit because they are experts or old hats. He theorizes and wonders if something like that was at work here, like refusing the tow because they're all veteran sailors and didn't want the, quote, humiliation of being rescued. There were obviously other things going awry. Cases like this are often a domino effect of just bad luck and bad decisions piling in on itself. But you, there's always that one decision or one turn of fate that has a huge impact. And this guy theorizes that that's probably it. And the most accepted theory is that they probably experienced a chain of small but successive setbacks that led to their unfortunate fate. Due to the progressive worsening of the situation, the four men slowly turned irrational, frightened, and agitated, and that led to even further mistakes and wrong decisions. But the question remains, what kind of setbacks or problems would have occurred because, again, at face value, when people lay eyes on the ship, they say that it is a seaworthy vessel and there's no traces of anything out of the ordinary coming up and there has not been a solid theory in over 50 years. But, I just thought about this, could the El Fausto have actually been cursed by Julio setting foot on it? Did he bring some bad mojo on board? Or is that area over there known for ship disappearances? Now, your guess is as good as mine, but, man, I don't know about a curse. Come on, really? A curse? You know how some of those islanders are about things? You know, his daughter was sick. Maybe he was the reason his daughter was sick, kind of. I'm not saying it's logical. I'm just saying. Yeah. Your guess is a good mind. But when I read that the cable towing it uh, snapped and she went bow first under, I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, and and I've not looked, I really haven't looked at those coordinates, but I'm guessing that that's some pretty deep ocean and no one has attempted to go down there and lay eyes on the El Fausto. But trugging along at eight miles an hour, I wonder at what point did they run out of fuel and they're just drifting? Because the uh, Ana de Mayo stated that her sails wasn't up, so... This is an odd one, dude. It is very odd. That's probably, I don't know, I don't know, but it's probably why we did it. Uh, maybe. If it falls into that mystery category. Yeah, I think I think it might. Mm, maybe. Maybe not. All right, recommendations, because I really don't know where the hell to go with this one, other than that poor shit was cursed. <laughs> I, I... I do like that theory that basically it was probably just a small chain of events that led to just shitty luck after, I think it's after their male pride told them not to take the toe. Yeah, I think I think it's a good point. Recommendations for this week. If you're into it, and I tried, y'all, I tried real hard, and and it's 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 done well. I just it's just not my cup of tea. But the Amazon series, The Outer Range, is, if you like Greek hubris and mysteriousness and nobody answering a fucking question in a TV show, then that show's for you. 
<laughs> I may give it. They said that it's going to be out for a second season. It kind of, and the second season will kind of open or answer a lot of the questions out there. But it has to do with a, basically a time traveling portal that opens up on this guy's ranch in Montana. It's just. I tried, man. I tried. I, I, I turned it off about halfway through the first series, and then I started reading all these reviews. And then I started, the, I finished the first episode, and then I suffered through the next, I think I suffered through the next four. And finally, I was like, the hell with this. And I read the synopsis, and I'm like, look, I saved myself two and a half hours of my life. I'd never get back. It was a good call. I, it's just my personal opinion. But it is real well done. Uh, Josh Brolin's in it, and he does a hell of a job, of course. It's an odd tale once you get to the end. It, it, it's going to leave you cussing if you follow it all the way through. But it it may be something that you're interested in. So, Well, I'm going to recommend The Pentaverant, a new Mike Myers limited series on Netflix. It's pretty funny. The Pentaverant? Yeah. Have you ever seen um, So I Married an Axe Murderer? Yes. That's what his dad talks about, like, they run the country, you smart ass. <laughs> they meet once a year at a place called The Meadows. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a based on that. So, All right, man. You got anything else? I sure don't. Well, then, deuces. <laughs>